the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Good evening, and uh, hopefully it's not too wet of a Sunday evening. I'm in the studio this evening with Kathy Lux. Kathy, thank you for being here. Good evening, Nick. How are you? Oh, we're going to argue tonight, aren't we? I can feel it. I think so. I think we're going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. But that's okay. Glad to have you. In a friendly, it'll be a friendly argument. Well, that's the way everyone should talk about uh, issues that tend to be a little bit political. I agree. And uh, we'll be talking about a political issue tonight. Uh, and it has to do with the U.S. Congress and having term limits. Mm-hmm. Should we or shouldn't we? And uh, what do you think about that, Kathy? So I think we should. And I thought, and you know, you and I both were in attendance at a meeting yesterday, and there was great conversation back and forth on that very thing, should we or shouldn't we? And do we really want to open this up? And uh, and, and valid points on both sides but um i think we should i i think it would go a long way in curbing the corruption in congress term limits well and and i i think uh, a bit differently what i what my thought is with regard to term limits we have term limits already every time there's an election and we're going to talk to somebody who's been actually deeper into this stuff than us we have a guest uh, tonight Aaron Duquette, Duquette, Aaron. Hey, Nick and Kathy, thanks for having me. Hey, Hey, Aaron. Yes, uh, Aaron Duquette. Aaron Duquette, okay. It's not the French pronunciation, Aaron Duquette. But but thank you. You're with a group called U.S. Term Limits. Tell us a little bit about that group and why are they forming and what's their purpose? Yeah, U.S. Term Limits has uh, been around since uh, 1991. Um, and the principal aim of U.S. term limits has been to get term limits on Congress, although we've been involved historically in term limits battles uh, at every level of government. Um, and we're a nonpartisan and non nonprofit organization working toward that, that one end there of term limits on Congress. And uh, back in the 90s, uh, in, in its infancy, the, the organization was very successful in uh, working with citizen groups uh, in 23 states to get uh, legislatures or by ballot initiative, get term limits on states' own delegations to Congress. Um, So that was put in place, but unfortunately, before they were able to kick in uh, back in 1995, in a Supreme Court ruling, um, the Supreme Court ruled in a split decision that uh, only a constitutional amendment, which applies across the board to every member of Congress, could put term limits on Congress. So that, in a nutshell, is what we work on. We work on toward getting that constitutional amendment because that is exactly the way, the only way that it can get done. What's wrong with what I said about uh, the fact that every election is a term limit? Why, why, is that, why does that need to be changed? Why do we need to put a limit on people? Oh, Aaron, I want to hear your answer, but I can weigh in on this too. But you go ahead first. <laughs> Well, I'd rather hear sure. Aaron because Aaron's further yes. away right now. Yes, I would. I would like to hear Aaron. No hitting. All right, let's go. 
So, so Nick, I would answer that um, by saying this: uh, that uh, on paper, yes, uh, you know, philosophical level, um, that we should be able to vote out whoever we think has been there too long. Um, if you don't like them, vote them out. But we all know from having any you know, even scant <clears throat> familiarity with with politics as it's actually practiced, um, that that does that does not happen. We have a 95 percent reelection rate in Congress, which is different than what you see, say, in a state legislature. Um, the state legislatures have much greater turnover than that. Um, but, yeah, 95% of the time the incumbents win their re-election in Congress. And it has, you know, several factors that come into play. But we, you know, at the end of the day, we have an incumbency advantage uh, that is way too strong. And uh, there's a natural incumbency advantage that just comes from being, being the senator or being the congressman. You have name recognition and all that, and that's natural. Um, but there are all the kinds of these artificial uh, uh, layers laid on top of that. Uh, they have a franking privilege where they can essentially, under the guise of updating their constituents, basically keep campaigning from their office on taxpayer dime. Um, they also have a significant financial advantage because uh, currently the, of the super PAC money that goes into congressional races, 97% of that goes to the incumbents versus the challengers so only in that three percent you get you know you break away you might uh, the the packs might be supporting a um a challenger and and that's really when you break it down it's actually along the lines of ideological things where um they're not going to you know back up the incumbent because it's ideologically you know oil and water with that person so uh you know on paper that that makes sense but in practice it just does not happen that way and you can also look at it this way, too, that with the 22nd Amendment, um, the country realized that by having term limits on the presidency, it prevented uh, any president from having three or four terms. Um, and I think we pretty universally agree that that has benefited the country, that we have not had three or four term presidents, um, you know, since FDR. And uh, so, you know, right there, uh, we, we don't complain that elections are term limits uh, with regard to the presidency, so why not Congress? And so, Aaron, so now I want to weigh in on this. because and, and, and what you're saying, to boil it down a little more, uh, the, the way our political system works in reality is, and in both parties, um, is when a candidate is running... The, the first question uh, in terms of the party supporting you and elevating you is, how, can you fundraise? How much money can you raise? And, and that's the system. And when you're looking at raising that money, typically it's coming from people who have special interests. And they expect something in return. And so when it all boils down the people that win the primaries, the people that the parties support and put out there are not necessarily the best people for the job. They are the people that are good at fundraising for one reason or another, sometimes not the best reasons. And um, when it comes to the issue of people voting and so that that's automatic term limits – you know, I have a whole lot to say on that. When it, what it to me, people are so busy in their lives in terms of you know families with with both uh, 
spouses working and child care and getting the kids to sport, sports and all of the things that go with that. They don't have time to do the research. They don't know what's really going on. They're not really aware. And so when they go to those fo- voting booths, they want to vote. They want to weigh in. They want to care. They see some commercials. It's who's advertising best. It's not really knowledgeable voting in many instances. And I am not saying that the voters are ignorant. I am saying that it's so difficult now to be informed. It has been for a long time. And so so they're going to the voting polls and trying to do their best, but they're not necessarily electing the best person. And, 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 and I think we need to talk about um, what, why it's important um, in terms of corruption that happens uh, as, to, as to how the term limits relate to that. Sure. That's, uh, you make a really good point about the uh, <clears throat> what you would call dialing for dollars. <clears throat> right. 60 Minutes a few years ago did a piece on this, and they, they interviewed both a Republican and a Democratic member of Congress. Um, and they actually kind of got some insider you know, footage of what, what happens. And actually just right across the street, you know, when they break out of uh, uh, Congress, they'll actually go to their respective cubicles, and they have the Democratic Center and the Republican Center. And they revealed, you know, they spend over half of their time in D.C. Uh, getting on the phone. They have lists like a telemarker, and they're they're dialing uh, <clears throat> funders uh, that raise this mm-hmm. much money, this much money. Um, he calculated at that point that that he he was required when he got in there to to fundraise eighteen thousand uh, dollars a day. <laughs> And yes. um, and that's that's really if you look at how that all plays out, that is how leadership is chosen over time in Congress. Yes. It's a combination of your longevity and the fact that you can fundraise. And uh, if you look, you know, uh, some some might bring up, you know, well, you know, the average tenure of taking them, all the members of Congress together isn't as you know long as you might think. And while that may be true, you can look at it, the, the impact of term limits really has to do with how how Congress is run institutionally. And currently it is run by multi-decade veterans that are there that have done their fundraising. Well, um, well let's hold on. Aaron, Aaron, let's hold sure. on with that thought. We're going to take a short break and we'll get back with Aaron. And we're going to be talking about uh, the idea of term limits. Good idea, bad idea, what kind of idea do we need it? We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips with Kathy Lux here tonight talking about term limits here in the United States uh, Congress. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. I'm here in the studio tonight with Kathy Lux. Thank you, Kathy. Oh, my pleasure. And we're talking to Aaron Duquette. He's from the group U.S. Term Limits. He's the Central Regional Director, uh, talking about addressing the issue of placing term limits on the U.S. Congress, both the House of Representatives as well as the U.S. Senate. So, Aaron, thank you so much for, for being with us. And uh, I'd like to comment on the last segment because I think Kathy and I are going to go back and forth on this a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact of term limits being viewed by some people as necessary 
and by others, I think mostly incumbents, don't think it's necessary. Uh, I'm, I'm basically a trial lawyer who deals with juries, and you know, the right to a jury trial is one of those constitutional rights I think we, we all want to keep. And I think we want to keep uh, ourselves uh, having the right to elect who we want to be our representatives in government. And uh, what I'm hearing with regard to a uh, limitation period for, I know the president was one thing, and that seems to be working quite well. Uh, But with the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, uh, the question there is maybe one rule does not fit all 535 members. Uh, Maybe there are some people who are bad and should be thrown out of office but they can't be because they have that momentum of money and mm-hmm. history. But yet there may be some really good people who uh, their representatives, their, their constituents want them in and are barred from that. So I, I guess there's two questions. Uh, and we look at it like, well, what do you tell the moderate people, the people who are in the middle here wondering what's going on, about what do you do about the good people who should stay on versus the bad people who should be thrown off? and the electors aren't doing it? Sure, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I guess I would put it this way. Um, just a bridge from what we were talking about before the break, um, you know, with regard to this sort of machinery that builds up around the incumbency in D.C., one effect of that is that you have entrenched incumbents that end up leading the show that have been there, you know, multiple decades. And if you look at the current leadership of any Congress, right, it's going to be multi-decade incumbents and they put in their dues and before i I actually looked at the average of our current leadership in congress and those in chairmanships and how long they had served before they were given their first chairmanship it was an average of 18 years in the house and 21 years in the senate so if Mm -hmm. i'm thinking hey you know i'm i'm a good citizen i have i've been accomplished in business or in education or whatever it is that you know background i come from and I have good ideas, and I want to do something genuinely for my country, I'm going to look at that and go, hmm, I need to go pay my dues. I need to go dial for dollars for a good you know, 15, 18, 20 years before I start then setting the agenda, because the power really you know, rests in those, in those chairmanships and leadership, of course. Um, and you've got, to, you've got to pay your price to get in there. Um, and so you know, part of the problem is that we have uh, a situation where – uh, there's a lot of good folks out there. I really believe, you know, I don't believe that we're just, you know, missing leadership out there. I think there are really good people that could run for for Congress and could actually accomplish things and solve some of our problems that, you know, the current Congress has been kicking down the road. Um, but they're dissuaded from doing so because they, they look at that and they say, well, <laughs> in order to get to that point where I'm going to start really making a dent, I need to consider this a career. And that means I need to lay aside my business, lay aside my career, and then treat this as my career. So it's sort of self-fulfilling. You know, it's actually created a system where it encourages professionalization of Congress and discourages good folks from running. Well, with a big mountain to climb to run for U.S. Congress to be a representative, even if the term limits are in place, how is someone who's an average, good-minded, good-willed person going to come up with enough money anyway uh, to run for office. And, and, and so I, I, I want to weigh in on that because I think that's a flaw in our system in terms of how we do that whole election process and how the parties um, and, and the country treats candidates. 
I think there needs to be a new approach to that whole thing of campaign funding. I think that we need to look at every candidate gets so much airtime, gets so much funding, and we're not then we're not opening it up to special interests. I mean, and to speak to 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 what Aaron was saying and take a, a little bit of a bend on it. So you're in there 20 years. And isn't it interesting that when you look at the net worth of some of these, many of these people that are in there, from you look at their net worth when they began in Congress and then 20 years later what their net worth is, and and compare that to their salary. Where did all that money come from? And you and and I mean, come on. Well, let me ask you this, Kathy and, and Aaron. Also, if and I always say this, my my children know I always say this when they tell me something. I said, if that's true, that's bad. <laughs> okay, so if that's true, let me ask Aaron. Uh, does uh, U.S. term limits? Do they have access to research documentation? talking about how prevalent is the problem of bad people staying in or people who are so influenced under the uh, monies given to them by lobbyists that they're basically being controlled versus people who are coming in being more altruistic and they're, they're following what their constituents' interest should be. Do we have statistics on that or a study? Uh, not in particular. I mean, that's a pretty broad um, thing to kind of you know pinpoint. But there's one thing we have looked at uh, in the past, and uh, looking at uh, Republican members uh, that often campaign on fiscal responsibility, um, it has been shown that they, when Republican members in Congress have been there uh, within about ten years, uh, their voting record with regard to spending is far more fiscally conservative. Then after that point, uh, after that point, they really start to go downhill, um, and and they have no issue spending. I think we've seen that through multiple administrations and so forth. Um, so that's that's one I can throw out in that and, regard. And, and, and Aaron, I, I I want to interrupt you. Do those studies show that their spending goes downhill because they are advocating and supporting measures that end up supporting? Um, their donors? Um, well, I would say that's probably the truth. I can't point to an exact study on that exactly. Um, but if you, you know, anyone, anyone can look up a, a particular senator's right. know, <clears throat> funding, uh, you know, history, and you can see, you know, which interests are trying to assert themselves with them, um, right. which is why lobbyists, you know, oppose term limits uniformly. They of hate course. term limits. Of course they do. <laughs> Well, obviously, self-interest is guiding everything, depending on who you are and what it, your constituents say. It, it, it is. But in this country, we are supposed to have representative leadership that is on behalf of the American people. And I think, to me at least, and to, I think, many, um, we are not seeing representation that is on behalf and for the good of the American people. We are seeing so much that is being done that the only way you can explain it is that it's on behalf of special interests. Well, I see, sure. I see it worse than that, though. I see it from the standpoint that uh, the Republicans and Democrats are so far apart they're incapable of getting anything done. Except that, I, and I agree, except that 
there are Republicans and Democrats that are working in concert for these same special interest groups. And the corruption, and there is corruption, is on both sides of the aisle. I think it's more heavily on one side of the aisle than the other. You know, one one helpful thing... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. I was just going to say, I think one way of framing the need of term limits that's very helpful for me and is really actually pretty central to me is when I think of a congressional seat, I think of who who does that who belongs to that right? Who who owns that seat? And the answer is the people of that district, right? It's their seat. Agreed. It's yes. their representation. God bless America. Yes, so, that is yes. true. I think I think of term limits as like analogous to antitrust law, right? Uh, monopolies, uh, as you know, are are most often you know, actually government supported and government created. <laughs> Well, it's no mm-hmm. different here with a monopolization on, on the incumbency. And what term limits will help do is ensure periodic open-seat elections where you have vibrant primaries, where there's more of an opportunity for competition within the parties, which means more choices at the ballot box for the average Joe. More money. And when you have mm-hmm. the politicians competing with each other, that benefits the voter. So, yeah. it, 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 you know, the money's always going to be there, but that allows for dissent within the parties because uh, now there's you know room for inviting, which I honestly, as a nonpartisan person, I think that's a good thing for a voter. And so I have a question, Aaron. So when we're talking about term limits, are we saying after this amount of time, you, you cannot run again forever or can you come back later? Because, you know, from my own experience... I was the mayor of the city of North Royalton, and we had term limits. So I was term limited, um, but I can now run again if I choose to. I don't choose to. But my question is, would that be something that would be available? And maybe we can get to that when we get back. When we come back, we'll talk about Mayor Kathy Luck's question about term limits. So we're talking tonight about term limits with... Uh, Aaron Duquette from the Central Regional Directorship of the U.S. Term Limits, and Kathy Lux and myself. Uh, if anyone would like to call in, you can call us here at 216-901-0945 and join us in our conversation. 216-901-0945. We'll, we'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate along with Kathy Lux. We'll be right back. Stay with us. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Here with Kathy Lux, and we're talking about term limitations in the U.S. government, in the House of Representatives, and in the U.S. Senate. And with us tonight, we have Aaron Duquette from U.S. Term Limits. Again, Eric or Aaron, as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I'm having fun. Uh, you know, we were just uh, before the last break, and we have a caller who's calling in, but before we get to the caller, I wanted to ask a question. Can you tell us any details as far as what's recommended as far as what kind of term limits are we talking about? And Kathy raised an issue. Uh, is it one of the things that, uh, let's say you have three terms, term limit for a House of Representatives, then you have to sit out one term, two terms, three terms, or are you barred forever from ever running for Congress again? So we're supporting, you know, getting a constitutional amendment for term limits on Congress, and so that means we can pursue it one of two ways, or both. (laughs) 
which is what we do. Um, we have an amendment proposal in Congress, which is specific and says an actual term limit. And then we have our Article 5 application through the state legislatures, which does not pre-specify the actual terms, because we're trying to call a convention to propose that amendment, and the purpose of that convention would be to deliberate different proposals, which could be inclusive of a rotational term limit or could be a permanent, and uh, most likely would be a permanent term limit lifeline. Uh, lifetime. Uh, the one that we support is uh, filed by Ted Cruz and Ralph Norman in Congress, and that does specifically have uh, a limitation of the terms that uh, no one person could serve more than three terms in the House and two terms in the Senate. So say you won re-election uh, re all the way through, you could have an 18-year career, and that's a very you know strong, uh, stringent term limit. Um, but uh, as far as the Article 5 application goes, uh, it's possible that uh, a slightly longer term limit could be proposed. But the, the possibility of a rotational term limit is a possibility, but uh, we would be pushing for a permanent term limit because we see that the, uh, the effect on the integrity of the institution is much more um, much stronger when it comes to a permanent lifetime term so limit. So if you're talking about a permanent uh, term limit, uh, someone could run for two terms, win one, win two, sit out for a term, come back, do another term, and then that's it. It's a lifetime limit of three? If, if that's what was, uh, yes. So it, it is possible under that proposal that, that Cruz has filed that you could run for two, uh, two, uh, two terms and then may sit out for 10 years and then run for another. It's lifetime cumulative, yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, we do have a caller. Larry from North Royalton is online being very patient. Larry, thank you for holding. Yeah, okay, Mike. You know, the 17th Amendment uh, nullified what the original Congress passed, where the state legislatures, uh, you know, vote in or select their senators. And you talk about term limits. Well, you know, if they go off the rails, they can be recalled real quick. Uh, what I propose, uh, number one, this constitutional convention or whatever he's proposing, I think it might uh, get uh, hijacked probably pretty easy by the left. That's why I don't quite go for it. Why not just uh, repeal or, yeah, repeal the uh, 17th Amendment that was ratified back in eight, uh, April 8th of 1913, just like the um, 18th Amendment, the Volstagg Act, intoxicating liquors, that was repealed by the 21st Amendment. And to me, uh, I think that's you can. I think I could sell uh, sell the state legislation and tell them, "Hey, buddies, you can get back your power by just uh, you know repealing the Seventeenth Amendment. You can put in your senators. They don't uh, do what you say. You can yank them back." And and so, Larry, I think you have some really interesting points there, and. A number of points. Yeah, yeah. Good, good things to talk about. I, I, I do. Um, and, but the one that I, I would really like to zero in on, because this was a topic at actually at the Republican committee meeting uh, yesterday morning of of it being hijacked, the convention of states being hijacked and other and, and leaving it wide open so that. You know, they could come in and attack anything. People could, with, right. you know, our Second Amendment. Right. Um, <laughs> numerous th things. And and so, but I think there are safeguards there, you know, in terms of 
um, and Aaron, I want you to speak to this, but if you look at the process of the Convention of States and how many states have to weigh in and agree, I don't see that possibility as being all that risky. I really don't. So, Aaron, I would I would like to hear you weigh in on this. I, I'd like to, Aaron, sure. I'd like to add one thought to it as well, based upon what Larry's talking about and Kathy, is the fact that uh, the way the Fifth Amendment is written, uh, arguably, once a convention starts, that becomes an authoritative body that can do as much or as little as it wants to do. Uh, so, you know, how how could this convention be opened just limited to addressing the issue of term limits for Congress? Sure. So I'll begin by expressing, you know, I have sympathies for what the, what the gentleman says with regard to the 17th Amendment. However, I think that is really like a 100-year project. Because <laughs> if you think about that now, selling to the voters that we should, you know, take away their ability to vote for their senators and give it to their state legislators, I think that's a very, very difficult sell at this time. Yes. Um, and so that's that's a possibility, and I respect it. And there's actually many that I speak to that are that are also sympathetic and are looking for solutions to reinvest the state interests, you know, in in Congress, which is what the Senate was initially supposed to do. Um, what we're proposing in, in Article Five is is not a constitutional convention. If that by that what you mean is uh, what we had in Philadelphia. Um, what it is is it, I'm just going to use the actual language rather than get into you know debating different terms. I just stick to exactly the language that is verbatim in Article 5. In Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution, it's a very short, one-sentence article, and it calls it uh, that when two-thirds of the state legislatures apply for a convention for proposing amendments. So we already know from the language of Article 5 that it's limited to the proposal of amendments only. Okay, so it cannot, at no point in this process is the Constitution open. It's not open for tinkering like it was in Philadelphia, right, we ended up with a new constitution. That's a different sort of convention. Uh, but it's only for proposal of amendments. And, and it's only uh, for the proposal of amendments that have been applied for by the states. And how do we know that? Well, I can point to just history that shows that that to be the case. There have been over 400 Article 5 resolutions passed by the various state legislatures in our nation's history. And you can look these up online. They're actually very fascinating. It spans American history. Um, uh, wanting to call a convention to propose an amendment on regard to civil rights, with prohibition, with women's suffrage, all kinds of things. It's it's kind of a tour through American history. Uh, Apportionment is another one, term limits, uh, balanced budget amendment, all kinds of things. And they all had subject matters. And the reason why, it was always understood, even going back to the framers, that the subject matter had to be agreed upon for that convention to be called. And the reason why we haven't had a convention yet is because we have not been able to get two-thirds of the states to agree upon a given topic at a given time for that process to be triggered. Um, and so already there's an enormous difficult uh, process, a heavy lift to even call a convention to propose an amendment. Um, and then there's a whole number of things that would have to go wrong for that to happen. I know emotionally people would say, you know, and honestly I'm going to say it's fear-based because of what we see actually in Congress and around around D.C. today, <clears throat> that things go wonky. But when you look at the actual process, because there are so many different layers of involvement, different states and different legislatures and different bodies, 
there's so many hands in that pot that it's be very difficult for it to run away. I actually maintain that even if I tried to make a convention run away, I couldn't succeed. If I wanted things to go sideways and get crazy amendments proposed, I would go to Congress and do it. But even there, it doesn't happen. Well, well, it's interesting. Hopefully, it's never been tested, and that's sort of the problem that gives everyone the the fear and concern as to uh, what what happens if we let the genie out of the bottle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it had to be carefully monitored. And because it hasn't really gone anywhere yet, I'm assuming there are no court cases coming out of the United States Supreme Court on the subject, not until it becomes there a case of country. There, Go ahead. there are a few uh, court cases that, that deal with some aspects of Article 5, yeah. Um, but as far as, you know, when we get to the actual process, you bet, you know, each step of the way is going to be challenged by somebody. <laughs> so um, it, it's analogous to, you know, when, when they... Um, Repealed prohibition, that's the one amendment to our Constitution that was ratified by the state convention route rather than by the state legislatures ratifying it. And uh, at that time, there were no rules pre-existing for the state ratifying conventions either. But well, they figured it out based on, uh, you know, past it, it is being It is being talked about. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back for our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. So don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips with Kathy Lex, and we're talking to Aaron Duquette from the U.S. Term Limits. And if you can call in, if you're out of the area, the number is 1-888-281-1110. Locally, 216-901-0945. would love to hear from you during our last segment. Very good. Stay with us. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And now, back to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. Welcome back to The Advocate for our final segment this evening. We're talking to uh, Aaron uh, Duckett from the U.S. Term Limits, and with Kathy Lux and I were talking about term limits. And uh, again, uh, Aaron, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up before we run out of time here tonight is that you know we're, we're sticking to the U.S. Congress uh, especially the House of Representatives, which is supposed to be the representative body of the people. And I believe it's 435. Uh, the original founders, of, at least the drafters of the Constitution, intended the House of Representatives to represent the people at about a ratio of 1 to 30,000, I recall. Uh, now I think we're somewhere, one representative in Congress represents about 700,000 people. Makes it very hard for a true representative who's going to communicate with his constituents to run and service 700,000 people if he doesn't come into it as a millionaire or a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, has anyone given any thought to restructuring Congress by a constitutional amendment or a statute to increase, going back to that one per 30,000 resident members? Technology being as it is, we can have pretty much an unlimited number of representatives. We have every, we've learned how to use Zoom for the last two years. Yes. Anyway, anyone talking about that? Sure, there, there are plenty of people talking about that. Uh, you know, organizationally, we focus right in on our one thing. Uh, you know, I'll put this out here. We don't, we don't pretend that term moments are our silver bullet and all of a sudden we're going to have angels running for Congress. Um, you know, it is uh, a check on power. It's a check and a balance against the power of the incumbency that has, you know, grown mm-hmm. exponentially from what it was at the time of the founding. I think our framers would be appalled by the level 
um, of power that is that is wielded in, in, in Washington, D.C. Their idea of a strong federal government is not what we have today. Um, it's a yes. lot, uh, lot different. And um, so I, I'm very sympathetic to that idea. I think of the state of New Hampshire, their state legislature and their House of Representatives, they have uh, 400 members <laughs> in a small state in their House mm. of Representatives. And last I saw, I think their average constituency is about 3,000 people. That's the size of my high school. Um, when I grew up in New Hampshire, yeah, that's good so, to work know, with. it's almost like you can know everybody in your district. Um, so I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, it's not something that you know U.S. Tremont's are working on, but that's a. It's definitely in putting in the direction of what the House of Representatives was designed to do. And so, and so we're seeing. You know, there's conversation, and we had this conversation yesterday at the meeting about um, our, our bureaucracies, our government agencies, also being acting very much um, uh, as though they have their own authority and their own ability and the lack of oversight over these agencies. And I wonder, um, and I've been giving thought to um, how term limits plays into that, Aaron. Very much so. Right. And so I, I dug into that because actually of, of all, you know, as someone who's advocating for term limits and passionately you know, agrees with them, obviously, um, I wanted to really look into what's the strongest argument against my own position. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. what I found to be most compelling from the opposition, not enough to cha- change my mind, but that uh, troubled me some was the idea of, well, what about this, you know, very overgrown federal bureaucracy that's right, grown right. up? like. What do you do there, you know, when they remain? And I, I came to this. Um, uh, the simple answer, I put it this way, is that um, that overgrown bureaucracy has gotten overgrown because of a Congress that actually has given up and forfeited over its constitutional authorities and duties yes. over to, to the and, and they can just kind of say, you know, we'll, we'll have oversight later, but then they don't. And, and, um, and uh, they continue that process that enables them to pass the buck and not address issues. But I also actually looked into a study more scientifically on this, if, if you want to talk about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know, because my question is, are, are they lazy? Are they corrupt? What's the motivation behind their not doing their oversight duties? I don't think they're lazy. I think they're definitely very busy. But it's a matter of busy with what? Um <laughs> Right. I, I I looked at it this way. Um, I, there was a study that was done in Colorado, um, trying, trying to examine the the impact of term limits on legislators' um, behavior as they craft legislation. So what they found was they looked at the state of Colorado, which has some of the oldest charter school law in the country, and uh, so they had you know good portion of time to to measure from. And they, they looked at charter school legislation before and after their state-level term limits kicked in. And what they found is in the years following term limits kicking in, that the legislators adopted 22% more mandatory restrictive language in the legislation that they crafted about charter school. So in other words, what they did was far more often they crafted the legislation to bind the agencies involved in charter schools to the will of the legislature now, rather than leaving more discretion to them and just saying, well, I'll be here in 10 years, we'll do another oversight then. Mm. What they do is look in and right now, no, you do it now because I'm not going to be here later to oversee this. So they actually 
encourages, what the study concluded was that term limits encourage the, the legislators to adopt a fixed time, a fixed horizon mindset. I'm only here for so long, so I'm going to accomplish our agenda together. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that actually strengthens the legislature. I mean, that's what we're really after here. This is actually a strengthening of Congress as an institution. Well, U.S. term limits as a group, you're working to put term limits on, on people otherwise who are going to be uh, presently under the current rules. They'll, they could be in, in power forever. And uh, they're supported not only by their own momentum from their own machines, but also from uh, the big dollar lobbyist out there. How how does U.S. term limits stack up against the pressures from the big dollar lobbyist and the, the momentum to not have term limits? How do you fight back on that? So our organization, uh, you know, we do pursue both avenues as provided for in the Constitution for a constitutional amendment proposal. And uh, we, we add a little bit of teeth to that because we do, as a nonpartisan nonprofit, uh, we do get involved with, with elections. We don't endorse candidates. Uh, so we will never send out mail or put an advertisement out there saying, vote for this person, don't vote for that person. But what we do is actually voter education. Um, and so we, we put out mail saying, you know, so-and-so running for Congress or even so-and-so running for the state Senate has signed the, the term limits pledge to get term limits on Congress. And we let the, the voters know, um, you know, who has signed the pledge and who has not. Um, and so we... Uh, we, our, our job is to educate the voters that are you know, overwhelmingly supportive of this initiative. It's it polls at 82% nationwide across party lines. So we find it our duty to, to educate the voters and let everyone know, you know, here are the folks that are good behind this, and here are the people that maybe are stopping it or are refusing to get involved. Could you give our listeners your website so they can check up on what you're saying? And do you have references to the studies and so forth? Sure. It's really easy to get to. It's just termlimits.com. There's a whole wealth of information found on there that you can dig through. You can look up. Uh, we talked about Article 5, some of the myths that are out there. I encourage everybody to take a look there. You can get these. A um, colleague of mine did a whole bunch of uh, flashcards kind of explaining with original sources, you know, uh, refuting uh, claims against Article 5 or against term limits. Uh, so you can check that out. We're also on YouTube. Just Google, you know, go into YouTube and uh, look for U.S. term limits. You'll find us. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on behalf of U.S. Term Limits. And Kathy, as always, thank you for being here. Oh, thank we didn't kill each other, so that's very good. It, well, not tonight. Not tonight, some and other thank, time. And, thank, and I thank you also, Aaron. It was a great conversation. Excellent. Oh, very, absolutely. very good. Thank you both so much. Well, thank you. And uh, I've never seen the American public so engaged in politics before, so that's a good thing. Thank goodness. And thank all of you. Thank all of you for listening tonight. We enjoyed talking to you and talking about these topics. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great, healthy, and safe week. Good night. Good night, everybody. Sleeping parrot, dreaming parrot dreams. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset. Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning And only my mind for company The Advocate is sponsored by Nick Phillips and is responsible for its content. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.